For those who heard the title, it was true. It's not a joke. We are going to be talking about the theology of sleep. I put the title as Rest in Peace, A Biblical View of Sleep. Um, as I promised last week, I'm going to give you a little intro on how this came about. Mind my own business at work. And PD texted me and said, hey, I want you to preach on sleep. And I said, uh, you got to be joking. Because <laughs> I never saw sleep. But he handed me a book. Um, well, he referred a book. And this book took the scriptures and what the scriptures say about sleep. And honestly, I mean, I probably read through certain verses. I probably read through certain passages. But I didn't realize how much importance sleep is in the Bible. And so today, um, like I said, the title of the message is Rest in Peace, A Biblical View of Sleep. We will see how the gospel is even shown through sleep. Um, I got a couple of stats up here. I'm not usually a stats kind of guy, but I thought this was a perfect topic to talk about. When we talk about the importance of sleep, how it affects our daily lives. Um, first off, you see 100,000 police-reported accidents per year are the direct result of driver fatigue. Um, we have, out of that, 1,550 deaths, 71,000 injuries, and about $12.5 billion in monetary loss, loss due to driver fatigue. 60% um, of adult drivers, 168 million, um, much is equivalent, say they've driven drowsy in the past year. How many people can attest to that group? I've done that quite a bit. 37% um, of adult drivers, which is equivalent to 103 million, say they've fallen asleep at the wheel. How many say that they ever experienced that? Um, this is, this is, it's a lot of people. Uh, 70 million report having a sleep problem. This is just in general, other than driving. 70 million people have said that they have a sleep problem. Now, you're, you're talking about people have said it. There's a lot of people that don't say it. A lot of people don't acknowledge that they have a sleeping problem. But these are people that have reported that I have a sleeping problem. Out of, 40, out of the 70, 40 million people suffer from chronic sleep disorder. And 20 to 30 million report intermittent sleep-related problems. Up to 40% of adults report at least occasionally having difficulty sleeping. How many people can attribute to that group? Sleep is, sleep is sometimes, a lot of times, an issue. Amen? Amen? Lack of sleep causes difficulty maintaining healthy relationships. How many people can agree with that? Lack of sleep. Lack of sleep uh, causes low mood during the day. How many people can attest to that? And lack of sleep causes difficulty staying awake during the day. Because <laughs> I know I'll be at my desk dozing off, knowing I should have went to sleep earlier than the night before. Yeah, yes, okay. <laughs> I can tell you that. I can be transparent. So I'm going to use an example since we're talking about sleep. I had a conference call, and I was happening to be at Dave's house. And um, we had just, I think we had just eaten Rasta pasta. So Shani had made it. And so we, it had like jerk chicken and all that stuff in there. And I, it wasn't just because of the food. I'm not going to blame it on food. I was already tired. And I think it just induced the tiredness I already had. So I'm on this conference call. I was on speaker. Thank God Dave was sitting next to me. Now, Dave, let me, for those who don't know, Dave, Dave was in the position I'm in at my job before me, so he knew everything. He knows everything that, that I'm, I'm dealing with. So we're on the, on the call, and somehow, somewhere, oh, no, I started dozing, and I was good. You know how you get those little light, oh, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I never really fell asleep. I guess this one, I just went deep in. <laughs> yeah. And so they're talking about some project they want to start doing, and so now they're asking all the people on the calls to say what part do you want to do. So all I hear is, Alan, so what are you going to do? I said, whoa. Uh, and all I hear, I hear, I hear uh, Dave, like, wrong. And I'm like, what? 
because I work at airlines, so it was they were asking what stations did we want to take over. So I'm like, uh, yeah, about project quality. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, I guess I can do that. Real confused. They're like, okay, so which one are you gonna do? I heard, I heard they say Rome. I was like, yeah, Rome, Rome. Because of the sleep, it it caused me to have difficulty staying awake, and it caused me to be counterproductive throughout my day. I should have been attentive. I should have been in that call and understand every single part. I should not have skipped a beat. But it's because of my lack of sleep or my, my, my bad sleep habit, habits, it caused me to be counterproductive. And I think we can see that in our jobs. I think we can see it in our relationships. Some of us who are married, even that, that we get grumpy. Our low moods during the day affect every single thing we touch. We don't want to do things the way that they should be done. We want to just, you know, do it as quick as possible, get it over with, not necessarily the most efficient. And so these things kind of bring down that sleep that you're supposed to call that person, you're supposed to reach out to that person, and you're too tired to go reach out to that person. Not just because of your day, but because of your sleeping habits. You see how these things affect every single aspect of your life. And so it's great to know that the scriptures talk about sleep. It's amazing to know that. Um, let's turn with me to Matthew 8, verse 23 to 27. Eight verse twenty-three to twenty-seven. As I just saying, as we read this this passage, and you have it say "Amen" and stand, please. Matthew eight verse twenty-three to twenty-seven. If you don't have it, say "Hold up." All right, no hold ups. So we're gonna go. Uh, it's a very familiar passage. It goes, and we he and when he got into the boat. His disciples followed him, he being Christ. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds in the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? You may be seated. My first point is that sleep is part of our created humanity. I think it's amazing. Um, I think sometimes I skipped over, like I said, certain passages, especially this one. Because, you know, we always hear that Jesus wept, right? But how greater or, because, we you know, when we talk about Jesus wept, we talk about the humanity of Christ and how he felt emotions. He, he cried. Not only did Je- had Jesus wept, but he slept also. The perfect man. The sinless man, the spotless lamb, slept. Meaning that sleep isn't something that was caused by the fall, but it was something that was ingrained in our created humanity. Not only do we know that Jesus wept, but we know that through this message that Jesus slept. The perfect God-man grew tired and slept. He was tired at the well. This is not the only instance because he was also tired at the well where he met the Samaritan woman. That's why he was sitting there. He was tired, so he stopped to take a rest. In John 4, verse 6, because Jesus was perfect human and yet he still needed sleep, it shows that sleep is a part of our humanity. Now check this. Since Jesus, although living in a sinful world, was himself a man without sin, we can also assume that Adam, back in the garden, who shared this characteristic, also slept. I know we have the account of when God put him in a deep sleep to create Eve, 
But you see that because they share this characteristic, the first and the second Adam, because although Jesus was in a sinful world where sin ab- abode, I think that's the past tense of abide, but that's going, otherwise we're putting that in the Webster tomorrow, but where, where sin was, the sin dwelt, Jesus himself was not affected by sin. He was a sinless lamb, because had he not been, he could not be a, a worthy sacrifice on the cross for us. So because Jesus and Adam walked in the same way, because Jesus and Adam, before the fall, of course, had the, that same characteristic, we can assume that Adam also and Eve in the garden, even before the serpent came into play, had to sleep. So how much more so do we have to sleep? We live in a society where sleep is seen as a weakness. You know, the people, the hustlers, the, the people that are on their grind, they say sleep is for people, you know, who are not. You know, I don't, I don't sleep. Why do I sleep? I can sleep when I die. But do you understand that sleep is important? It's God-ordained. We're going to see that later. Look at how Jesus responds to the disciples. When they who cannot sleep because of the storm wake up Jesus, who is sound asleep in the midst of it, his immediate rebuke is that they are of a little faith. Their lack of the ability to rest in the midst of the storm showed their lack in the ability to trust in the one who can control it. Do you see that? He didn't say, listen, I'm, I'm sleeping. Stop bothering me. His first rebuke was, oh, ye of little faith. Meaning that just the same way I can sleep in confidence, even in the midst of the storm, you should too. We're going we're gonna to embellish a little bit on, on that, on that um, as we go. My second point is, my first point was sleep is a part of our created humanity. My second point is, sleep is a good gift to be treasured and enjoyed. James 1, verse 17. Turn with me, please. We're going to be Bible surfing a lot this morning. James 1, verse 17. James is right after Hebrews. James 1, verse 17 reads... For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift is from God. The Bible shows us that sleep is included in the good gifts. Turn with me to Psalms 127, verses 1 through 2. Psalm 127, verses 1 through 2. This is yet another familiar passage. It says, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Do you see that? God gives to his beloved sleep. It's a gift and a good gift from God. The scripture should be familiar to those who have been in our leadership meetings as PD has repeated this, the first part to us countless times. As we talked about planning in the stage of KLM, for those who have ever been in the meetings, we've, we've heard these verses quite a couple of times. The passage contrasts one who trusts in God and one who trusts in, in his own work. At the end, you see that the one who trusts in God is granted sleep. The ultimate picture of trusting God is being able to lay your head down at night. Sleep is a gift from God. Amen. How many know that a lot of times when we can't rest our, our head is because there's some things in our lives that are keeping us awake? 
Some things that we can't let go of because we're trying to do it on our own. And so it's only when you let go and let God. And we're going to say that's not the only reason you may not be able to fall asleep, but this may be one of the reasons is that you're holding on so much to something that God is saying, I got this. Go to sleep. Psalm 23, verse 1 and 2. Another very familiar couple of verses. Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2. David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. In the context of the analogy of the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep, we must know that the only time sheep lie down is to sleep. They don't, lie, they don't even lie down to give birth. They do everything else is from a standing position. So when David writes this, what he is saying is that because the Lord, who is the shepherd, puts him in a state where he has no need to want, he is able to lie down and sleep in peace. He's able to rest in peace. Psalm 77, verse 3 and 4. I told y'all we're going to be Bible person, Bible servant, going all over the place. <laughs> Psalm 77, verse 3 and 4. Now, this is Asaph, who was the chief of the musicians at the temple. He says, when I remember, in verse 3 and 4, it says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Check this. So we see here that not only does God grant sleep, but also sometimes ordains the lack of sleep. If it is God who can withhold sleep for a particular reason, of course, then it shows that it is him who gives it in the first place. What we're trying to aim at is to show that sleep is not just something that happens. Sleep is something that God ordains. In his sovereignty, he's also sovereign over our sleep. Proverbs 3, verses 21 and 24. Proverbs 3, verses 21 and 24. Twenty-one says, my son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Twenty-four says, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. We see here that sleep is called sweet. Anything that's called sweet is good to me. That might be my problem. Because <laughs> anything that's sweet is good for me. Good to me. But it may not be good for me. But in this case, it's good for you and good to you. You see that the scriptures talk positively about sleep. Of course, there's, a, you know, there's an extreme of too many people that sleep too much. You know, Proverbs is laced with that, with the, with the sloth and the, 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 lazy, the lazy one who sleeps all day and does not work. That, that's, a, that's another extreme. Of course, any gift that's given can also be abused. <laughs> Jeremiah 31, verse 26. 31, verse 26. Okay, so let me give you the backdrop of, of this verse that we're going to read. Jeremiah, anybody knows, they usually call him the weeping prophet. Because Jeremiah had prophecies that were hard sayings. Jeremiah had prophecies that Israel didn't want to hear at the time. So Jeremiah was going through a lot. It was hard to do Jeremiah's job. Um, and so now Jeremiah is... Having just had a dream of a restored Israel where farms were, were cultivating foods, um, you know, and everything was all right. And so he wakes up and says this. 
In verse 26, at this I awoke and, and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Notice here that he doesn't talk about the dream was pleasant to me, but his sleep was pleasant. I know sometimes we wake up from sleep and we thank God for a great dream that we have. But how many times do we wake up from a good night's sleep and thank God that we had a good night's sleep? A lot of times the only time we pray about a good night's sleep is when we know that we've been having trouble. But we don't thank God daily that we just woke up from a great night's sleep. And when we understand that sleep is a gift from God, every time we receive it, we must be thankful. Every time we receive it, we must be grateful because there's a lot of people, as we saw in the stats, there's a lot of people that are not able to experience that great gift, that restoration, that able to wake up rejuvenated, so able to, of course, if you sleep the right way, but able to wake up ready for the next day that you have. We must not only recognize sleep as a gift, but also enjoy it. But it's also, like I said, warnings against misusing this gift. Proverbs 20, verse 13. Proverbs 20, verse 13 reads, Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. Now, when it's saying love not sleep, it doesn't mean don't love sleep, because that would be contradictory to what I've been saying this whole time. But what he's saying is do not become... Don't make it an idol. Sleep can become an idol. We got some people who want to sleep throughout the whole day and never get up out of their bed. Never get up. And that's when sleep becomes an idol. And what the scriptures are saying that you need to get up and do some work. There's another place in the Proverbs that says those who don't work don't eat. We have to get up. But at the same time, we got to sleep. There's a balance. So I know there's some that sleep like two hours and think that we're good. No, no, no. We need to make sure that we get enough sleep, but we need to make sure that we don't make sleep an idol. Amen? It is the context of the gift that makes it good. A fire is a good gift in its right setting. In the fireplace, it brings warmth and light. So the first, the first warning was do not make sleep an idol. The second one is that we had to watch the context because it's the context that makes the gift of sleep good. So again, I, I, I say a fire is a good gift in its right setting. In the fireplace, it brings warmth and light, but outside of it, it brings ruin and destruction. This analogy is popularly used in regards to sex. We've probably heard people use an analogy um, where sex is a beautiful gift from God, yet when you take it out of its proper context, which is in the marriage between one man and one woman, it becomes a sin. It is no different than sleep. Sleep is a gift, but that doesn't mean it's suitable in every context. In Matthew 26, verse 40, we see Jesus making that clear when the disciples kept falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, which applies to this morning, I hope y'all don't, feel, y'all, y'all don't be convicted, Eutychus in Acts 20 fell asleep during Paul's sermon. So if you fall asleep this morning, ask for forgiveness. <laughs> Repent. So we see that we have to make sure that this good gift is done or experienced in its right context. Number three, the third warning against misusing this gift is we should never think that just because we are able to sleep means everything is all right with our walk. We talked about that sleep is a good gift from God, but that doesn't necessarily mean that just because you can sleep that everything is okay between you and God. I I believe that this can be linked to the verse where it says gifts and causes come without repentance. Because in the fact that, you know, sleep is a good gift and, uh, you know, even financial blessings is a good gift and all these things, just because you're rich doesn't mean that you're okay with God. 
Are you, are you with me? Just because your family has peace doesn't mean that you're okay with God. Are you with me? Just because your car doesn't break down and you have a great transportation to go to and from from work doesn't mean that you necessarily have a great relationship with God. These are great gifts, but at the same time, we still need to examine our walk with God. The wicked sleep sound too. Like any gift, the fact someone has it doesn't necessarily signify that all is right between them and the Lord. For example, while Jonah was in disobedience to the Lord, he was in a deep sleep in the boat as it was being ravaged by the storm. Anybody remember the story of Jonah? When Jonah was fleeing from the, the assignment that the Lord had given to him to go to Nineveh, he was on a boat and it was going through a storm, which is kind of funny, peculiar. I didn't really see if there was a connection where in Jesus' case it was going through a storm and Jesus was able to sleep, where Jonah was in disobedience and he was in a storm and he was, he was also able to sleep, but he showing that the wicked can sleep also too. So it, we should not see that, okay, we got to have sound sleep. You're saying that it's a good gift. So if I get to sleep every night, that means me and God are on good terms, not necessarily. So we made the point that sleep is a part of our created humanity. Sleep is a good gift to be treasured and enjoyed. And my third point about sleep is sleep is a sign of trust. Humanly speaking, in order to sleep soundly, we have to trust certain things. Most have to trust that the doors are locked securely. We must trust that the windows are inaccessible. We must trust that the roof won't leak. We must trust that the, the, the bed that we sleep on will hold us up for the whole night. There are plenty more, but all this is to show that our quality of sleep is affected by our trust and security of ourselves and the environment around us. You wouldn't go to sleep soundly if you knew that your front door was wide open. Bear with me. You wouldn't go to sleep soundly if you know that your window is wide open with no screen because anybody can just jump in in the middle of the night. Some kids can't go to sleep unless there's a light on because they don't feel secure unless that light is on. Some people can't go to sleep without music. There are things that we, we know and we may not realize it, but these are things that have to be right before I can go to sleep soundly. You know, some of us, if, if, if a certain person in the household is not in the house, they're not going to stay, they're not going to go to sleep. These are security things that we have to trust in in order to go to sleep. We have to see that this is the same thing in the spiritual. A lot of times the issues that keep us awake at night are those things that we have not fully trusted the Lord with. And so because we have a lack of trust in these areas, we are not able to go to sleep soundly. Let's remember this. The people of the Old Testament slept outside. All these things that we trust in now are nothing in comparison to the trust they had to have in those days. They had no systems to trust in, nor even a solid roof over their heads. Most slept in tents in the wilderness in the danger of wild animals, enemies, and even traitors. So we're talking about we can't sleep if our alarm system is not on. And they're talking about we had to sleep and trust in the Lord because where we were, there were no alarm systems to worry about. It was those lions in that forest next to us. It was the enemies that we were encamped against that we, were, we go to sleep trusting and hoping that they don't come to us in the middle of the night and take over us. We're going to sleep next to people who may be the traitor that takes over the whole army. All these things were into account, but yet the people of the Old Testament were able to sleep. Psalm 3, verse 5 and 6. We can go there. David says, I laid down and slept. Psalm 3, verse 5 and 6. He says, I, I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. You see that David is saying that he was, 
He was able to lay down and sleep because he knew that the Lord sustained them. Psalm 4 verse 8 says, In peace I both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You see that his sleep or his ability to sleep was linked to his trust in the Lord. Y'all with me? In both instances, David can sleep because he trusts in God's, God's providential care. He can sleep because he knows God is with him and is sustaining him. The willingness to lie down and sleep itself is an expression of trust in the sovereign hand of God. That means we must remind ourselves that because of God's sovereignty, nothing that will happen will be outside of his control. Nothing bad will happen that he has not allowed. The same control he has while we're awake is the same control he has while we're asleep. So if we're able to walk and jump into our car, jump on highways, walk across the street, go to work, be in buildings and not be worrying about whether it's going to blow up every two, every two seconds. If we're able to trust him while our eyes are open, we can trust him while our eyes are closed. We're, we're, I, I, you know, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but the statement rings true with this point is that we can sleep because God doesn't. God doesn't sleep. Neither slumber nor sleep, Psalm 121 says. So we can sleep because guess what? The one that's watching us, his eyes are always open. I'm remembering even Elijah when he was having the, the competition between him and the prophets of Baal. And when Baal, you know, wasn't showing up on their side, he jokes around, well, maybe he's sleeping. <laughs> maybe, he, maybe he know he's relieving himself. Maybe he's joking because he knows that the God that he serves doesn't sleep. God is always alert. God sees everything. He never grows tired. Even the, the rest in, in, in Genesis wasn't because he was tired. He was setting the standard. And I believe that he was setting the standard for us because we need rest. God doesn't get tired. He's the all-powerful, almighty God. Jesus could sleep on that boat because of his confidence in his heavenly father. He knew he would not drown because he knew it was not yet his time. While Jesus already knew the plans of his life, even we who walk this life day to day can trust that whether we foreknew it or not, whatever happens is under God's control. While we may not know the number of our days on this earth, we can rest assuredly and stand firm that if tonight is the night that I am taken, it's not because of some terrible mishap that was unforeseen by God, but that it was by his sovereign will. Nothing takes God by surprise. So even if I don't know, see, the thing with Jesus, Jesus knew what his plan was. Jesus knew he was going to come on this earth, and he was going to die on the cross and resurrect on the third day. So he already knew, and I'm on this boat, this storm is not going to kill me. I can have confidence in my God because he is sovereign. His plan is already set, so I can go to sleep. But even for us who don't know exactly the time nor the day when we're going to pass away, we still can trust in that sovereign God. We can still trust that even if it is tonight when I lay my head on that bed, I won't wake up the next morning. Guess what? The God that I serve, the God that I trust, he already had it according to his plan. So if he wants to take me tonight, that was his plan. Either way, while I'm awake, I'm submitting to his plan. And while I'm asleep, I'm also submitting to his plan. Are y'all with me? So how can we trust this? How can we trust um, um, you know, this sovereign God while, while we sleep? And now we go to Psalm 121, verse 1 through 8. Well, we make the point I mentioned just before. Psalm 121, verse 1 through 8 says, I lift, up my hill, I, lift up my, I lift up my eyes to the hills, for where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
He will not let your foot be moved. He, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The, the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God doesn't punch out when we knock out. <laughs> I just made that up now. That sounded kind of nice. But when we go to sleep, I think we have this notion that, you know, we're kind of like God's supervisor. And so as long as we're awake, we could, you know, kind of, okay, supervise. All right, God, I see you. All right, we can trust you. I'm here, so you're probably going to do your job. But once we rest our eyes, once we rest our head on that pillow, it's almost like we lose control and we don't know what's going to go through. So now we have anxiety. We have, we're not sure of what's going to go on. And so we almost, it's almost as if we don't think that God has the same control during those eight hours or whatever hours that we go to sleep. But God is sovereign. He is still, listen to what the psalm says. He says, our help comes from the Lord, whether we're awake or asleep. Our, he will not let our foot be moved, whether we're awake or asleep. He will, he will not slumber, whether we're awake or asleep. He, will, he, will keep, he has kept Israel, and he will never slumber nor sleep, whether we're awake or asleep. He is our keeper, whether we're awake or asleep. He is our shade on our right hand, whether we're awake or or asleep. His, the sun shall not strike me by day, whether I'm asleep or awake. The moon shall not strike me by night, whether I'm asleep or awake. He will keep me from all evil. He will keep my life, and he will keep my going out and my coming in from this time forth and forevermore, whether I'm awake or whether I'm asleep. I can sleep soundly because I trust in the God that stays awake. And is watching me even as I'm asleep. So in my weakness, in my vulnerability, I can be vulnerable because he's not. See, when we have, you know, for instance, if we had a guard, let's say there, there was some valuable equipment here and we had no security here, then we would be in a vulnerable spot and everybody would be on their P's and Q's. But if we had a, a well-established security guard sitting outside of this building, we would just walk as life as if everything was okay because we trust in the guard that's out there. Let me let you know that the guard that guards your life is never going to sleep. So we can walk and live life in trust of that guard that's sitting outside. He's not man where we grow tired. He's not man where we may fall off. He is a God that never has a tally mark in his losing column. Even when we're vulnerable, he's not. He has set up a fortress around us. He will protect us even when we can't protect ourselves. Amen? So we talked about sleep is a part of our created humanity. We talked about sleep is a good gift to be treasured and enjoyed. We talked about sleep is a sign of trust. And I think this is my, when I think about our hope in Christ, when I think about our aim as Christians, this point right here blew my mind as I, as I studied it. Sleep is an earthly picture of a spiritual reality. Back in the day, more so than now, tombstones of believers read, Asleep in Jesus. Some may think that saying asleep was just another way of not confronting the issue of death. Now, sometimes we feel like it's too hard to say, you know, um, I'm sorry your mother died. So we'd rather say, you know, I'm sorry your mother passed away. I'm sorry your mother, you know, went on with the Lord. Or with, so A lot of times, sometimes we use certain terms because we're, some, some of us, not everyone, but some of us are afraid to confront this issue called death. 
So we try to, you know, pacify it or use euphemisms to, to, to replace that word death or die in order to, it says the same thing, but it's in a softer manner. But let me let you know that when they said asleep in Jesus in, on the tombstone, it wasn't for that reason. Some may think that saying asleep was just another way of not confronting the issue of death. This was wrong. These brothers that were in these tombs, these sisters that were in these tombs, were not afraid of death. They understood it. Multiple places in the Bible use sleep to describe death. Psalm 76, verse 5. I know we've been going around the Psalms for a lot. Psalm 76, verse 5. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. I don't think that was the verse I wanted. Yeah, that, yeah, that was. So we see that sleep is being used. Um, we see that, um, that, yeah, the word sleep is being used. Let's turn. Jesus uses to sleep to describe the state of Jairus' daughter, who we know to have died. Let's jump to Luke 8, verse 52 to 55. I don't think that was the verse I wanted. Luke 8, verse 52 to 55. We're seeing how biblically the word sleep was used in the, in, to mean death. So we see the story of Jairus was, a, was a, I believe he was a, um, in, the, in the army, and he had a daughter that was, that was sick. And so this is, I believe, the same time where Jesus uh, you know, runs into the woman with the issue of blood. And so now in that time, Jairus' daughter dies. And so Jairus, in 8 verse 52, you see here, so this is after the woman of the issue of blood. He deals with her on the way to Jairus' house. And so in 40, let's go to 48. Um, no, I'm sorry. 49. It says, while he was yet speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, the ruler is Jairus, said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Verse 50 says, but Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and, John's and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. So we see here that Jesus is saying that she's not dead but asleep. And so sometimes you probably would look at that and say, okay, maybe she was in a coma. They didn't have medical things like that. But let's look at another instance where Jesus uses the sleep and death thing very clearly. Um, in, the state, in, the, in the situation of Lazarus, Lazarus uh, John 11, verse 11. John 11, verse 11. So we know the story of Lazarus. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were friends of, of Jesus, and the news came to Jesus that Lazarus um, was sick. And so they called for him to come in, you know, and to do something about that. And so verse 11, we have it here. After saying, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Check this out. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Because the disciples, when he said asleep, were thinking of the sleep that we have every night. So they said, hey, if he's asleep, let him sleep. He's going to recover. He's going to be restored. He's going to, you know, he's going to get better. But Jesus goes and corrects them. 
He says, well, it says in the Bible, it says in verse 13, now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So when Jesus said that our brother Lazarus was asleep, Jesus knew what he was talking about. Jesus meant that he, he died. His life was gone. He, he, he was dead. The disciples misunderstood and said, oh, so if he's sleeping, we don't need to go over there. That means he's okay. He's, he'll, you know, he'll get better. But Jesus knew what he was talking about. Jesus was saying asleep in the place of death, but was doing it because it was fitting. And we're going we're gonna to expound on why that was fitting. I say, so that was verse 13. Verse 14 says, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. This is to mean that even in death, there is more to come afterwards. The disciples understood this about sleep, but not death. But Martha understood this because in verse 24, she, when, when she comes and she says, you know, um, let's go start from 21. It says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I, knew, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Verse 23 says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. See, Martha understood something that the disciples didn't understand, that even after we die, that's not the end of our story. Death, does not, death is just a passageway into the other life. Death is not the end of our story. We as Christians should know that. Death is not the end of our story. On this side it is, okay? On, on, on this side it may look like because, you know, and, and I'll, go, I'll go more in depth with that, but, but death is just a, a passageway, a door into another, another side. Are y'all with me? All right. Not only does Jesus say these things, and, you know, we have these passages, but Paul goes on and clearly defines this sleep. First, um, First Thessalonians four verse fifteen. Let me pull the PD. Is this blessing you? Yeah, y'all, y'all, y'all getting it. See the importance of sleep and and how sleep is an earthly picture of a spiritual reality. First Thessalonians four verse fifteen. Paul says, "For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord." will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the question is, who are these people that have fallen asleep, Paul? Are these people that are just in a coma? Are these people that just happen to be asleep when Jesus comes back? But verse 16 goes and he explains who these people are. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You see that? So in the first, in verse 15, he says, listen, we're not going to go first. We're not going to go before these people who are asleep in Christ. Question is, who are these people who sleep in Christ? And the next verse, he says, those who are dead in Christ will be the ones to rise first. So Paul explicitly shows you that when I talk about sleep, I'm talking about those people who, who, are, who are dead to us. But their story does not end. Are, are, are you all with me? Paul was not one who was timid about the subject of death. He addresses it explicitly elsewhere. Why was sleep appropriately used? It's because death is not the end. Lazarus' resurrection was a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Christ to come, which would be the first fruit of the general resurrection of the saints. Death could not hold him down. That's why it's perfect we sang that song this morning. But death could not hold him down, and he was raised on the third day. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. And, and let's, let's go there real quick. First Corinthians 15, verse 20. It's a couple of books back. 
15 verse 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Understand this, the first fruits of a harvest, natural harvest, were important because they show you what kind of harvest you'll get. So pretty much if you, you know, when you're farming, if the first fruit of the harvest is, the, let's say if you're planting grapes and it becomes, they're good grapes, that gives you a sign that the rest of the grapes that are to come are going to be good grapes also. So we see that Christ's resurrection was the first fruit of the harvest of our resurrection. Are you with me? So in him being resurrected in this new body, he is the sign that we also who believe will also be resurrected in new bodies. The first fruits of a harvest were important because they show you what kind of harvest you'll get. What happens to Christ is a picture of what's in store for every believer. Some, step, some may think that death is the end, but Christians do not. We should not. We know death to be a step in the process of us to be like Christ in our resurrected bodies. We have a resurrection that's awaiting us on the other side of eternity. We're not meant to lay in the grave in the six feet under, and that's the end of our story. But we are living for a life to come. And that's why Paul says in, in Philippians, for to die is gain and to live is Christ. Meaning, Lord, if you take me right now, I'm good. That's actually a gain, not a loss for me. Because now I get to experience the presence of the one that I'm professing on this side of eternity. We should be looking forward to this side. I know we've been garnered or geared to be afraid of this thing called death, but when you truly understand what death is and what the cross did to death, we are no longer scared of death. As a matter of fact, we as Christians welcome death. That's why the disciples of Christ, they were still professing Christ when death was in front of their face because no weapon formed against them shall prosper, not even death, because guess what, death? You only bring me faster to what I've been looking forward to. Are y'all with me? I, I think we, we, we grow up in a society where we're scared of death. We have all these safeguards. And I'm not saying don't be fool, to go out and be foolish and jump in the middle of the streets and die. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is if death is approaching near to you, we should not be afraid of death. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, oh, death, where is your sting? Because Christ defeated death on the cross. Death is no longer an enemy of us. See, death crept in when we fell in the garden. It was the penalty for the sin that was committed in the garden. But how many know that the cross dealt with the penalty of sin? So now death is even submitted to Christ. That's why he resurrected on the third day to show that I overpowered this thing called death. Whew. It's not over after death. Sleep is a perfect analogy to death. So one on this side of eternity, for us who see people, you know, our loved ones or people around who have died, it looks like it's the end. Death has finality. Our, you know, the bodies are buried or cremated, the wills are read, and the assets are, are distributed. But we as Christians should not take death that way. We understand that the finality is only present on this side of eternity. We understand that dead, the dead shall rise just as Christ did. So it may look like the end when we're looking and we're at the funeral. My, my grandmother passed just a couple months ago, and I'm watching as the coffin is going down on the ground, and I'm in tears. But the truth is that she's already on the other side. And there is a day that I will be able to behold the face of my grandmother again, because we all who are believers will rise again. Truth has um, an acapella rap that I, I, I love, and it's called Resurrection. Um, and, and in a part, he goes... Um, how many listeners know that when you rise, you, you know that when you die, you rise and be with the rest of us? Meaning that when, those who will believe in Christ, guess what? Even when we depart on this side of life, we will see each other again. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's not some cliche thing that we say, because this is why we have to be careful. Those who, who are, who are, you know, are around, we have to be, and it's one of those things where it's one of those hard sayings, but this thing is only granted to those who believe in Christ. And, and, and I know it is some of those instances where you know that person who has led a lifestyle that, show, that does not show the fruit of, 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 of the belief, but we, we kill the, the importance of this gift, we kill the value of this gift if we just apply it to everybody. Where one where we know that has left a life that is sin, that is anti-Christ, and we go and attribute this gift that we have been given as saints of the Lord to say that we will see him again. No. And that's why I believe that there's a lot of non-believers who don't feel like there's a need to become a believer because you're saying the same things that are attributed to you for believing is attributed to me. When you die, they say that we're going to see you again. When I die, I'm in my sin. I know I'm in my sin, and I'm not hiding it. They say I'm going to see you again anyway, so what's the point? But when we realize this thing is exclusive to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will value it way more. When we understand that this is a gift that is graciously given to believers, we don't deserve it. We have done nothing to deserve it. But it's because of the blood that was shed on the cross that we are able to partake of this gift. Everyone wakes up. Here's the thing. This is what this is not what I this is. Not what I was saying with that last statement. Everyone does wake up, saved or unsaved, but we're headed in two different directions. Are y'all with me? Revelations 20, verse, first, second Corinthians 5, verse 10, and then we're going to jump to Revelations, where we see this being um, happening, where well, John sees this happening. Second Corinthians 5, verse 20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, that is not, oh, I'm sorry, 5 verse 10. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So meaning good or evil are going to have to wake up at some point. Y'all with me? Um, Revelations 20 verses 11 through 15. We... we <laughs> and this applies to this, but the revelations, you can blow the dust off of it because it seems like revelations is the least preached or talked about book in the Bible. But here's the difference, and even in light of what we're speaking of, we who know that we, are, we will be asleep in Christ do not need to be afraid of the things that are revelations. Because we have a whole different, we don't have to deal with these things because we who are in Christ, these things are the end, our Father wins. <laughs> the Lord wins. And so we don't need to be afraid of the, all the tribulation and things that we see that we see in there. So um, Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15 says, "Then this is John talking. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, him being Christ. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Even Hades must give up her dead on the judgment day. Unbelievers don't like to use the word sleep for death because it proves the resurrection. And with resurrection comes judgment. You sleep soundly when you have no fear for the next day. 
For the believer, death no longer merits fear from us. Again, oh, death, where is your sting? Death has been defeated. We don't fear going to sleep because whether, whether we wake up on this side or the next, we are assured where we stand in light of judgment. This means when we pray to God for a good night's rest, we should pray that one glorious day we will fall asleep to this world forever. And when we thank God after we wake up in the morning and thank God for a good night's rest, we should also thank him that on one glorious day we will wake up in his presence for eternity. For on that day we will wake up free from pains, from sickness, from disease, from sorrow, and from sin. This is not something that we should be afraid of. This is something that we are looking forward to. This life is not the life that we are looking for. That's why when we have books like Your Best Life Now, that's unbiblical. Our best life is a life to come. What better life than it is to be in the presence of the Lord? To be the presence of the one that you've lived your life sacrificing for. The one who loved you when you didn't love yourself. The one, the one who cared for you. The one who was mindful of you when you weren't mindful of him. The one who was faithful to you when you weren't faithful to him. The one who, while you were yet a sinner, sent his son to die on the cross in your place. That's my best life. So this life, you can do whatever you want to do to me. I'm going to stand here while I'm here, just like Paul says, while I live, it's going to be Christ. But to die is my gain. It's not a loss to me. Yes, it's a bittersweet when a loved one passes because we lose them on this side of life, but what, what comforts us is that they're on the other side in eternity with their father. So sleep is of an earthly picture of a spiritual reality. So when we lay our heads asleep, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, had, I also had a mutual friend who, who passed away in the sleep last year. We have a lot of people who say, you know, that's the way that they would, they would want to go because it's peaceful. But whether you go through your sleep or whether you go while you're awake, we all have a waking up that we will have. And for those of us who believe in Christ, it's going to be a glorious day. For those of us who are, our hearts and our, our lives are in the hands of the living God, we need not to be fearing of that day that we wake up on the other side. Like I said, unbelievers are scared of doing this analogy thing because they know that now they have to be accountable for the things that they do on this side. Because now when they wake up, they have to rest assured where they're going to wake up. But we as believers, not because we've done anything. This is, this is the key. This is why we're assured in where we are in judgment. It's because not what we've done, but what Christ has done. He's already justified us. He's already taken what was guilty and made it clean. He's taken where our sins have left crimson stain and made it white as snow. So that when we stand before the judge, he does not have a folder that says the life of Alan Jean, but he has a, a folder that says the life of Jesus Christ because Jesus died with my file. Jesus died with my record. And now when I stand before the judge, I am blameless because Christ is in my place. I, I use this example when the whole thing went off, but with the Trayvon Martin case, um, you know, we all knew, I think we all were lawyers in this, in this room, and we knew all the evidence pointed Zimmerman should have went to jail. But when that verdict came out, we were upset. And we see that the one who was guilty, everything pointed to him. He, you know, he, he shot the gun. They, they found out that he wanted to be a cop, so that 
necessarily means this guy, you know, uh, must have been in a position where he wanted to force himself to try to be a man of authority. We heard the call where the cop repeatedly told him not to follow the kid. So even if Trayvon started the, the altercation, he still was at fault. We also find out that where he said in the beginning that he never knew about the stand your ground laws, the first teacher who took the stand on the court said that that was one of the main things we talked about in the class that he got an A in. Everything pointed to it. But yet when the verdict came, he was not guilty. But you know what, what, what got to me was in that same way, we will stand before a judge and we know we will be guilty, but we will be counted righteous. But it's not because of a fallible justice system, but because of an infallible Christ that took our place. Are y'all with me? So when we sleep, we need not afraid whether we're going to wake up on the other side or not, because even if we wake up on the other side, guess what? It's great. As a matter of fact, we should look forward to waking up on, that, on the other side more so than we do waking up in this life again. Because this life still has pain. This life still has sorrow. This life still has sickness and disease. This life still has sin. We have to wake up another day and deal with these fleshly bodies that we have. But when we wake up on that glorious day and we stand before our Savior, no longer dealing with these things, oh, what a joy we will have. And a matter of fact, it won't even be our joy because our father will say, enter into my joy. <laughs> Whew. Jesus, and there's nothing like the joy of the Lord. There's nothing like experience. We talk about, you know, having, you know, worship experiences at different events or churches here. But can you imagine when unmistakably right in front of your eyes is the one that you're worshiping? Or unmistakably, the one that you've been adoring, the one that you've been praising is now in front of your eyes. Anybody who's ever been in a long distance relationship, when you find, I mean, PD and Courtney were, you know, you're talking on the phone and you're saying all these, these you know, you're boo loving and you're, you know, saying all these sweet things. But the day that you see them face to face, the joy that is in your heart, that the thing that your, 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 your words long for, the thing that your eyes long for is now before you. How much more so than the true and living God? God of wonders. Our greater God. Our awesome healer. That he is before us. That he is he not only is before us, but we are called to rest with him, to, to, to be with him for eternity. There's no, there's no time lapse. It's not a temporary situation because in those experiences here, right after we leave here, those experiences go. It's right back to the real world, as we say it. But when we wake up on that other side, we will be there for eternity. It will never end. We will always be in the joy of the Lord. There will no longer be a need for a sun and the moon because the light will come from the glory of the Lord. A couple of applications as we end. Number one, do not be afraid to ask God for sleep. We understood that sleep is a good gift given by God. And so we, we can ask God, if we have issues with sleeping, we can ask God for sleep. Number two, have faith in the God who never sleeps. Um, he uses, a, the author of the book that I was reading, used an example, he was in India, and he, he usually, he, already, he had already addressed the fact that when he sleeps, he has to sleep with the window open. You know how some people have, certain things have to happen, like they gotta sleep on one side of the bed or whatever it may be in order for them to sleep soundly. For him, he had to sleep on the side of the window because he liked fresh air during the night. 
But what happened was in this place where he was staying in India, they had just gotten an infestation of flying cockroaches. And he explained to them, they were not these little cockroaches, they were some big cockroaches. So now he's faced with, I can't sleep without the window open, but these cockroaches is like, I don't want these cockroaches flying in. And so he had to trust and put a screen in the window and trust that the screen would keep the cockroaches out. How many know that this this screen that he trusted in is is an example of the screen which is God that we can trust in? That we can sleep soundly. (laughs) We can sleep soundly because God has it all under control. We need not fear anything because God has us covered. Number three, learn to be content. Check this out. In um, in Philippians 4, verse 11 through 13, um, I know we're very familiar with Philippians 4, 13, but I think a lot of times it's used out of context. Um, Philippians 4, verse 11 through 13. You know, we know that I I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. But we have to look at the the context of why Paul said this. And in verse 11, he says, um, I'm in the wrong book. (laughs) In verse 11, he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens, strengthens me. And in, the, in the book it says, and the contentment is key to a good night's sleep. Ultimately, argues Burroughs, Burroughs was, was a Puritan preacher who preached the contentment of Christians. This means seeing that the mercies that we have in Christ, meaning our salvation, outweigh any other consideration. To put it in the language of the bedroom, if we go to sleep as Christians, we go to sleep as having everything. There is nothing that the world can give us to fill us up or complete us. We are complete already. So meaning we should not go to sleep thinking about the things that we need, what we need to add on, what we need to get, because we are content. We should be content, and contentment leads to a good night's sleep. When you know that you're okay just the way you are, you're able to sleep easier. You're able to sleep easier. Number four, and the last one is, and this is what, he made this point in the book, and I think it was amazing. As a community, we should help each other to be able to enjoy this gift of sleep. Find ways to bless others, especially new parents or parents of newborn children, to be able to give them time to get much needed sleep. He used an example of if we have, like, for instance, you know, I'll put them on the spot. We, Cleavana and, and Christina, you know, thank God that they're, they're you know, they're expecting. But um, in those instances, I'll use them as an example. If you know that they're losing sleep, we should try, what, let, let's, let's, you know, let's come over real quick. We'll watch the baby. Y'all can go to sleep. Y'all can go out. Y'all can rest. And, and take some time. Because when we understand how good of a gift sleep is, when we understand how a necessity sleep is, then we as a community, because we hurt when our brother hurts, we hurt when our sister hurts, and we, we, we take on their same burdens, we should take on the burden as if it's us losing sleep. So let me sacrifice some hours of my time in order to allow my brother and my sister to experience the good gift, which is called sleep. Are y'all with me? So this is not just something that we just take on for our personal, we go to sleep good, but this is also something we should think about in light of community. Are you with me? So when, when we think about that, don't just think about our good um, ways of going to sleep, our ability to go to sleep at night, but let's think about our brother and our sister and how we can allow them or free them up to be able to experience this good gift that we call sleep. I hope that after this message that we are able to more so than before rest in peace. And see that God cares about sleep, God gives sleep, 
Now, sleep is an earthly picture of a spiritual reality. And that every time we go to sleep, we should look forward to the day that that's the last time we go to sleep on this side. And that we wake up on the other side. As I said, every head bowed and every eye closed.